0: Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: Portland today is a better Portland than it's been in any time in my memory. And all of the cool things that have happened have happened in part because we've had people moving, bringing their ideas and their innovation and starting businesses and creativity. And can the city solve this on its own? No, it can't. There are fundamental issues that need to be addressed, mental health realm and investments in housing. We can have a really strong land use planning system, but you can't have that and have a NIMBY attitude about development within Portland. All right,
0: folks, today is a perfect example of why I'm so glad We started a podcast because I get to have conversations with people like Jules Bailey. Jules is an incredibly intelligent person. Most political folks in Oregon are probably familiar with Jules, but if you're not, he started out as a state legislator. He served in that role for six years. We talk about that on the podcast, how he got started, some of the major issues that were going on in the, I think he started in 2008 and served for six years. After that, he served as a Multnomah County Commissioner he ran for mayor of Portland in 2016 against Ted Wheeler, and since then has been at the Oregon Beverage Recycling Cooperative and kind of maintained his status as a, I'd say, civic leader in the Portland area. We talk a lot about Portland in this episode. So little overview of what we talk about. One, time in the legislature, budget context, some of the familiar names of the time, Ben Cannon, Chris Garrett, Arnie Roblin, people, Peter Buckley, folks who were involved in that era. We talk about his time as a county commissioner and why he quickly went from that to a run for mayor. We talk about the state of Portland today and the new electoral reform that voters just recently passed in Portland, what he thinks about that and what its impact might be. And then we talk about OBRC, the Beverage Recycling Cooperative, including the origin story for the bottle bill, which I really like. We've been talking a lot about Oregon history on the pod. That is a really important part of Oregon history and one of Tom McCall's great legacies. Although, as we hear from Jules, it wasn't just Tom McCall. And in fact, Tom McCall kind of stole the idea from someone else, which was kind of his style. But it's a great story. And we talk about some of the the innovative and interesting things that OBRC is doing. So thank you for listening. And I do want to make a note before we jump in. No Reagan today. Just really, really tragic that Reagan couldn't be here. But even more tragic when you find out why he wasn't here. This is a true story next week or maybe the week after that. When he's back on the pod, we should ask him about this. He built a chicken coop and the chicken coop caught on fire because a heat lamp was on the straw. His chicken coop literally caught on fire and he needed to go like build in a, a new space for his chickens. I don't think there were any casualties. I think everyone's, everyone's fine, but he couldn't be on the podcast because he had to build the coop before the chickens either got away or something. And we'll have to have him defend himself. But I think he's recorded a message if Buddy is able to insert it here. (laughs) Reagan has a message for all of our listeners.
1: Hey, Birds listeners. It's me, Reagan. Here's the chicken coop I built. Appreciate Ben for taking on this podcast solo today. Sorry to our listeners for missing out on hosting. Sorry to Jules. I really appreciate you for coming on the podcast and looking forward to being on the next episode. See you guys.
0: But after that, we will jump into the episode with Jules Bailey who just narrowly escaped Reagan lodging a complaint about the Albany bottle drop center. But thank you everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. And we will see you back here next week. Thanks.
1: Harang Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harangue.com That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G dot com.
0: All right, Jules Bailey, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun.
0: I have been excited to talk to you for a long time. We've known each other for a while. I was like, knew who you were when you started serving in the legislature. And that's kind of where I want to start. When I think of, I told this to ben cannon i have not told this to chris carrot but i think i told this to you there's like a small cohort i don't know if you guys were all the same class of these like sort of like young smart people who like all got to the legislature and you all left rather quickly i should note but you've gone on to do cool (laughs) it might be a cautionary tale (laughs) (laughs) but so before we get to the to that like how did you actually you ran in a very competitive primary i was looking this up like there's i think three or four Real serious candidates. How did you decide that you were going to run for the state legislature?
1: Yeah, well, first off, thanks for making me feel old. (laughs) Oh, I remember you back when you were a legislator before I was in politics. (laughs) Back when I was in uh, middle school, I I really admired you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, (laughs) No, and those were, that was a great group of people that I got a chance to serve with. And anytime I get to be mentioned in the same breath with Ben Cannon, Chris Garrett, some of those folks, uh, that was a lot of fun. And honestly, I got into this a little bit by accident. I had worked in campaign politics in Oregon really early on in the early 2000s, done some work for Bill Bradbury, for those who remember Mm -hmm. that name from back in the day, our secretary of state, and actually sort of then wanted to get out of politics. And I went back east and did my graduate work in public policy and economics. And I came back and I was working as an economist for in a consulting firm in Portland called Echo Northwest that does a lot of economic consulting. But then just by coincidence, the state rep Diane Rosenbaum, who's now at the county, right? Diane Rosenbaum left her seat to run for what was at that time Kate Brown's Senate seat when she went to run for Secretary of State. And it opened up the state rep seat, not only in the district where I lived, but where I'd grown up and my mom still lived. And I, you know, from Southeast Portland. Which, by the way, fun story, when you walk around inner southeast Portland and you knock on doors, and you're like, I grew up in the district. Everybody says, oh, that's great. I moved here six months ago. I don't really <laughs> <Yeah. care."
0: laughs> no one cares. No that's one like a, cares. Actually, yeah. interestingly, I've been thinking about this on a macro level. That's like also true for Oregon. Like yeah. when, you know, like I'm a, a sixth or seventh generation Oregonian. Most people do not care. They're like, cool. Like I'm one of those people who you don't
1: like that moved here from California. It <laughs> doesn't but, actually work. Know, Actually, sorry to digress for a second. I'll get back to the bio, but you make an interesting point. I mean, this has been probably a decade ago and maybe dovetails into some of your questions about Portland later, but I remember sitting at Bishop's Barbershop on Hawthorne and 37. And the guy that was cutting my hair, he says, oh, where are you from? And I said, well, actually, I grew up about three blocks from here. And he said, oh, that's funny. You know, you're the only person I've met who's from the neighborhood. Do you resent all the people that are moving into Portland? And I was like, you know what? Honestly? Portland today is a better Portland than it's been in any time in my memory, and all of the cool things that have happened have happened in part because we've had people moving to Portland right. and bringing their ideas and their innovation and starting businesses and creativity, and and so it's been nothing, I think, but a positive, really. But anyway, I digress. So Diane Rosenbaum moved out of that seat, and. I went to a couple of friends in the neighborhood who'd been thinking about running for the legislature and said, Hey, you know, seats open, now's your chance. And uh, one of them said, I just started a business, it's not really a good time. And then we went to another woman and tried to recruit her, and she didn't want to do it, just had kids. And they both turned and looked at me and said, Well, why not you? (laughs) So I did. So I jumped into the race. You're right, there were three other candidates, good candidates in the race, people who I still have a lot of respect for. One of them was the legislative assistant for Diane Rosenbaum. And we had a good campaign and I wore out several pairs of shoes, knocking on doors. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And, you know, there's nothing like a a primary campaign where you're door knocking in December and January and it's snowing and it's, yeah, it's a whole different experience, but a lot of shoe leather and ended up winning. And then uh, had a pretty easy go in the uh, in the general election, I think, in that seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, people joking that maybe this is still a thing people say, but I wasn't the representative elect. I was the representative expect. I, had <laughs> <wanted to end. laughs> I have me. not heard that, but
0: that is good. So you get elected to the legislature. Was it six? Oh, wait. Was it six years?
1: Yeah, I was there three terms. Yeah.
0: So major highlights from your tenure that you look back on and are like, wow, I'm really proud I got to be part of that
1: there's a lot i mean on sort of the big picture stuff honestly it wasn't fun at the time but you know there's this concept of second order fun right like things that are fun only in retrospect but in <laughs> retrospect you know i was there during the depths of the great recession and it was hard it was really hard and the co-chair of ways and means in the house at that time peter buckley i just okay. remember how much that really weighed on him yeah. and so being part of a legislative body that had to help guide Oregon through these really choppy waters and deal with rapidly shrinking budgets and the housing crisis and all of these different things that were hitting at once was really hard. But I think for the most part, we did a good job. And I was there. I wish Reagan was here to hear this, but I was there for 30-30, right? I was there in yeah. the 2011 session when the House was split 30-30. And your listeners may know I was a, a Democrat in the legislature. We had co-chairs, we had co-speakers. And honestly, it worked pretty well. We had a lot of bipartisanship. I think that was a a function of some of the leadership that was there that was willing to put aside their differences. You know, we had co-speakers in Arnie Roblin and Bruce Hanna, and those two, I think, really set a tone for what it meant to work together. And that was a fascinating thing to be part of.
0: I have a question about that. So Arnie, Senator Roblin, former senator, former representative, former co-speaker, he was not like. I'm a mad. I don't know. But he wasn't like majority leader. He wasn't like he didn't have like a caucus. Maybe he was some caucus leader. I think he was
1: Speaker pro tem. Uh, I might be mistaken, but I think I think he was Speaker pro tem.
0: So when you were in your caucus conversation, obviously, I'm guessing the way that this worked is like the Democrats nominated Arnie and the Republicans nominated Bruce Hanna. Do you remember like, were people like, well, we need to pick someone who like Arnie would fit this category who can like work well with the other side. Like, were you picking someone for a 30, 30 speaker, or were you just like picking the person you wanted to be the leader? I'm kind of curious how that happened. And yeah, I love I mean, Arnie was, Roblin, by the way, like I'm a was huge There's a lot
1: fan. of, I think, negotiations back and forth, but ultimately we were looking for someone who could be a consensus builder. Right. And I think Arnie really fit that profile. He had broad support within the caucus, somebody who people on the you know more progressive flank and the more centrist flank could both support in that role, and who I think had a temperament, to be honest, to be able to deal with those ebbs and flows. I'll say this about Arnie, and, and I, I love Arnie. Arnie had this way. Now I'm telling stories out of school, but, uh, (laughs) but Arnie had this way, uh, you'd bring him some challenge or some problem or something that maybe you had, it was a contentious issue and you'd lay out your position for him. And no matter what you said, it didn't matter what you said. You could say like, the sky is green and the moon is made of cheese. And the first thing out of his mouth would be, well, I agree. And then, and then he would go on from there. And then he would say something that was actually different than what you said, and sort of like reshape what you said. But the fact that he started every response with "I agree" they completely disarmed people and thought, "Oh, he agrees with me. Oh, this is good. I'm, I'm getting what I want here." Right? And he was so good at that.
0: <laughs> I my favorite thing about this podcast recently is I get to talk about these like folks like you know like you mentioned Peter Buckley like and you know Arnie Roblin. I have been thinking about – I actually was on a call with Peter Buckley earlier today um, oh, wow. for my day job because he runs Southern Oregon Success, which is this incredible – in fact, we I should have Peter Buckley on the podcast because mm-hmm. what they're doing in Southern Oregon Success is incredibly innovative and very cool. But to your point, there's this narrative, I think, in and around the legislature and in the media today about like, oh, this is a tough budget cycle. Like we don't have as much money as we did the last, but it is nothing (laughs) like the Great Recession budgets where it was literally like, I heard these stories. I don't know if I've told this on the podcast. Someone told me a story about Mitch Greenlick wanting to be removed from the Human Services Subcommittee because he was like, all I do is hear from people who say how life-saving this program is. And then I have to go and cut it and cut access to these like life-saving programs for people with special needs, like children, et cetera. So it's a totally like definitely a tight budget cycle compared to the ridiculous budget cycle that preceded this one where this federal money was just pouring in and every legislator had like millions of dollars to spend in yeah, that, the walk that around is- money. Wow. But it's nothing like it just is not even in the same zip code, right. Of the decisions that were being
1: made following the great recession. It was hard. It was really hard. But I think, you know, I, th- I think there was some discipline that came out of it. There were certainly some disagreements and we did other policy stuff too. I mean, that was really when a lot of the big changes in the bottle bill happened. And I got to be part of those on the Energy and Environment Committee. And I think we had a sense at the time that we were doing something that was going to really change the trajectory of, of this sort of iconic Oregon program. But I, flashing forward, I don't think we ever really truly realized what we were doing. And so there was, I mean, that there was a bunch of good energy efficiency and climate stuff that happened. Then it was actually bipartisan energy efficiency retrofits and those sorts of things, all of that was really good. So it wasn't like we were just you know, down in the dumps on the budget, but it certainly dominated every conversation.
0: So you serve for six years in the house and then you immediately just, you run from there to Multnomah County Commissioner, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. So I ran in 2014 for Multnomah County Commission. And when I won, I actually then resigned from the legislature to start at the commission because I was, Filling Deborah Kafori's open seat. So I was actually oh. filling the remainder of her term. So I had to be sworn in immediately when I won. Got it. Because she was becoming chair of the committee. Exactly. Yeah. So I ran in the May primary. And when I won in the May primary, then I was sworn in actually June 1st, I think it was. So what percent of seeking the job on the Multnomah County
0: Commission was about actually having a real paycheck versus being interested (laughs) in
1: in the work? (laughs) Not going to lie, that might have factored into the calculation. You know, I think I I really enjoyed the legislature. I really did. And one of the things that I liked about the legislature was that any given issue, you could take it on, right? You could, Mm -hmm. unless it was sort of, you know, foreign policy or something like that, you could essentially take on most issues in some way. But I've always really liked to go deep into things. And I felt like the opportunity to do that in the legislature was limited. And Multnomah County seemed like a good way to go deep on some of the issues that I felt like were really important and that we're building steam. I spent a lot of time on housing and homelessness at the time. You know, obviously still an issue today. We didn't didn't fix it, you know. Headline. <laughs> Turns uh, out spoiler alert, we didn't fix it. And then also on some of the county sustainability stuff and transportation that I just I enjoyed geeking out on a little bit more than I was able to at the legislature. And that was a a big part of running for the county.
0: You're a Multnomah County commissioner. You just sort of moved up from the legislature. And then I think relatively quickly, you decide to run for mayor. Yeah. This is like my recollection was, I imagine at the time you knew this was sort of a long shot attempt. Mm -hmm. Like Ted, Ted Wheeler was like the favorite. He was a statewide elected official. He was previously the county commission chair. And you had this really good gig. I thought it was a very gutsy thing to run for mayor. What was the thinking? Like, What made you decide to jump in?
1: Gutsy is a very charitable frame, so thank you.
0: (laughs) As someone who would like people to think of my similar political decisions
1: as gutsy and not something else. I'll I'll trade you. I'll find find the time to use that that, uh, (laughs) adjective for you. You know, I liked the county. It did give me the opportunity to dig into some of these issues, but ultimately the role of a commissioner versus the role of a chair really at the county with respect to the current commissioners that are there. And I, I love the work that they do, but you primarily only have hours to get things done once a year during the budget cycle. And mm-hmm. you're more of just sort of a budgetary and policy body. And there isn't an executive portfolio there. And so you end up sort of taking on projects that the chair has assigned to you. But all of the administrative power flows to the chair, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, let me be clear. I'm not <laughs> saying that that's a bad thing, but you're sort of adjacent to the action a little bit. And it was it was an interesting adjustment. I remember when I was in the legislature. You know, you could call a meeting on a topic, and people would show up because you could run a bill on it and you could go do something. You call a meeting as a as a county commissioner, and you get a lot of like. Uh maybe I can make it. No, no, no. Let me check my calendar for. Two Is that months real? From now. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, nobody cares. And so it was very hard to feel like I was making forward progress on a lot of the issues I cared about. Not to say that there wasn't any. We did some good things at the county. But when Ted ran, he was originally running against Charlie Hales, and then Charlie Hales dropped out and At that point, there ended up being other people that got into the race. But at that point, it was just Ted, right? And it didn't look like anybody else was going to get into that race. And, you know, I had several conversations with people I won't name, but, you know, high-profile figures, are you getting into this race? It's been rumored. They said no. And I frankly just didn't want there to be a coronation, right? Mm. I thought here's a chance to get into a race, be able to talk at a big scale in the city about these issues that I really care about, and really try to carve out a space that uh, as as someone who's been invested and cares deeply about the city and wants to make a difference on these things. And, you know, I think ultimately one of the challenges was sort of distinguishing myself, I think, from Ted. You know, I I didn't get in the race because I was necessarily anti-TED, but I think it was a an opportunity to to talk about those issues. I knew it was a long shot when I got in, but I'm really happy I did it, to be honest. And in some ways, to be honest, I'm really happy I lost. But... <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say. So, you, you, what year was that? 2016, right? So, and 2016. It was fascinating.
0: That was before. I mean, I feel like the narrative around Portland started after that,
1: right? Like it this did. narrative like around Portland just and shifting around then. So, like, so 2016. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to like put your your mindset back in what it was like because even though it was the 2016 election, I started running in the fall of 2015, right? Because the election was May of 2016 for the primary. So let's flash back to those days of the fall of 2015. Bernie Sanders was not a credible candidate, right? Like on the left, I mean, with apologies to Bernie supporters, right? Like, like I don't mean that to be anti-Bernie, but like there was sort of this sense of, oh, that's crazy. Like Bernie Sanders is running for president. Well, that's not going to go anywhere, but glad he's doing it kind of thing. Well, obviously he ended up being an incredibly viable candidate, right? Donald Trump was not punch a viable line. candidate, right? It just was just a punchline. Like, who's that? why is he riding down on an escalator and saying yeah. terrible things about people? There's no way. It's still going to be Rubio or Jeb Bush. Jeb or Bush, yeah. Yeah, right? And so the world had tectonically shifted, and I don't think anybody had really caught up to it yet. And so being in that electoral cycle and starting to realize how different the world really was and what was going on. And seeing it change in real time was really interesting. And you could see a lot of the, there was a lot of pent up anger. And I think some of it was for good reason that it was in the electorate that expressed itself. I mean, you can go back and look at articles. There were interesting articles in the paper about it. I had this group of people that was following me around to every single candidate forum that we did. And we did like, you know, 47 of them. <laughs> and, you know, we actually, as an aside, Ted and I used to joke going in, I was like, Tonight, I'm going to do your lines and you do my lines. <laughs> we'll just, just mix it up a little bit, right? <laughs> because we've done them so much. But, but you know, we there's this group of people that would follow us around and scream and disrupt candidate forums and jump on stage and rip up my name card. And it got to the point, you know, to Whoa. be a little more serious for a moment. We were actually spending a lot of time with the Wheeler campaign coordinating security and okay. trying to figure out how to protect ourselves in that because it was getting somewhat violent
0: where on the political spectrum were these folks who were protesting or were they honestly i
1: don't think anywhere on the political spectrum it was sort of a it was sometimes hard to tell what the grievance was and it was people who i think were just really angry about everything that was going on and it was manifesting in that way and you know in retrospect a lot of that has become much more commonplace unfortunately in the public sphere and the coarseness yeah. of debate has been i think a little bit more pervasive but at that point it was still nobody was really used to that happening and it, it was a big change
0: well that's like a precursor to probably mayor wheeler's first sort of like signal of what was to come with i mean he's he get there's newspaper articles i feel like relatively frequently about like he's had to move houses or he gets followed to dinner or like there's the whole pepper spray thing like it feels like that shift is like still a thing. And perhaps I don't know if it's escalating anymore, but it definitely feels
1: like the coarseness is totally. still around. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I've had my disagreements with the way things have gone and, you know, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback it. But where I can say I've got a lot of <laughs> a lot of sympathy, it's really hard to go home and tell your spouse who's you know with your infant son, hey, if you see someone outside, call the cops. Because we've had a death threat, right? And the the death threats and the, you know, people coming in and protesting peacefully is totally different, right? Like I, totally. you know, that that's a different thing. It's the it's the the threats of violence against you and your family that that get really hard. Yeah. Well, that is a perhaps good
0: transition. Like, I think the thing I've been most Looking forward to asking you about because my and correct me if I'm wrong, but my like perception from the outside, like we've been acquaintances, but you know, I, I don't know you super well, but my perception of you was like, you've always been kind of like a pro Portland person, like to, you mentioned Echo Northwest and I think John Tapania wrote a piece, I think it was him and it was like don't bet against Portland. Like yeah. I've always kind of put you in that category of like you love the timbers, you love the Blazers, like you believe in the city. Like you kind of talked about it when you were sharing the the barbershop story. Are you still there, or like do you, have you? What What do you think about the state of Portland and obviously the narrative around our? You know, I'm not a member of the city, but it's sort of Portland is all of Oregon City. How do you feel about Portland given
1: the last you know three to six years? I mean, if Damian Lillard's not giving up on Portland, no one else <laughs> should either. Uh, <laughs> That's good. That's- you know, I it is Portland going through a rough patch. Yeah, absolutely. And I and it's been challenging. You know, it, it's interesting. I seem to be super, super candid here, right? So so I was in Detroit last year in May and spent some time in Detroit both for work and then with some buddies. And we were hanging out and having a good time in Detroit. It's an amazing city right? Like there's just a lot of cool things happening in Detroit. And it has, we just were blown away at the energy there and the enthusiasm. And I remember seeing this sign at Eastern Market and it said, Detroit hustles harder. And we all agreed, oh yeah, that's kind of the vibe that we're feeling, right? And there was a sense that Detroit had gone through the really, really bad times and that everybody had kind of bonded together and said, well, that sucked let's see if we can make this better. And so they were kind of putting all their differences aside to row in the same direction and were trying to make things better. And I think one of the challenges in Portland has been that when you've kind of gone over the edge of the hill just a little bit, where things seem like they're getting a little worse, it's hard to accept that at first. And there ends up being a lot of finger pointing about whose fault it is and why. And, you know, this group's responsible and we should do this or this is happening. And it's really hard to build that cohesion together about where we're going until you've kind of gone through it a little bit. And people have gotten past that into, okay, how do we make it better? And so my hope for Portland right now is it feels like maybe we've turned that corner a little bit into, okay, now let's all work together to, to make it better in a particular direction. Maybe that's Pollyannish, maybe it's not, but I think that's sort of where we're getting to. And, you know, to be to be clear on Portland, Portland's still an amazing city, right? I mean, even the geological benefits that we have, right? The fact that you can turn left and go to the mountain and turn right and go to the beach uh, is always gonna put us on the map. The food scene, the small blocks downtown, the the sense of community that, you know, all of these things that have made Portland great are still there. I think the, the hard part has been that we've always sort of had those things as a crutch and maybe those have masked some other problems that have been happening within Portland and they can't mask them anymore. And so we can't just say, oh, everything's going to be fine because you can turn left and go to the mountain, turn right and go to the beach. That will be a fundamental anchor point on which we can build success. But the fact is, and you know, this might be controversial for some of your listeners, but taxes are too high in Portland, and we're not getting enough services for what we're paying in. Now, not all that city taxes, right? Like, And I get the distinction in the governments and various things, but I think there is a broad perception that people are paying into a system that isn't producing the outcomes that they expected from that. And we see that in the migration data and we see that in economic development strategy. And that's a real challenge, right? We can't keep expecting that people are going to live in Portland all the time and invest here against their best interest just because they love it. Right. And that's that's going to be a hard corner to turn.
0: You there's a quote, I think it was in Willamette Week from you. I don't remember the the story that it was about, but people were you, you referred to Portland as a high tax and what
1: high tax low service? Yeah, I believe the second part of the quote, this might get you an E on your podcast, but it's <laughs> not working, right? Yeah, right. And, yeah. and I was, you know, I do believe that. It didn't mean for that to sound as negative as it did, because I do think there's a lot of people trying to get it working again and working across a lot of different groups. But I think we have to sort of start with that recognition that, that there is a challenge, both perceptionally and in reality about the services that are being delivered and people want to see progress. Right. And it's hard. There's always an excuse and there's always a reason. And and I'm part of it. Right. Like, so I'm not blaming others. Let me take some of the responsibility completely myself. So when I was at Multnomah County, I really subscribed to this idea that the only way to solve the homelessness crisis was for there to be a really long-term housing-first solution and that you couldn't deviate from that in any way for shelter capacity and other things because it was sapping your resources from a long-term solution. And so that the analogy that I had created and anybody who knew me at the time knew that I talked about this till I blue in the face, right? So the analogy I'd created was the problem of homelessness is a flow, not a stock, right? So if you think about water in a bathtub, people sometimes think of homelessness as Oh there's a, you know that there's a stock of water and we need to get it out of the tub right we need to like bail the water out but it's not people enter homelessness every day and they exit homelessness every day and and really it's not and that that stock of water is the difference between what's coming in the tap and what's going out the drain and so you don't necessarily need to get the water out of the tub you need to turn down the tap and you need to open up the drain and then the tub will drain right and you do that by increasing rent assistance, and keeping people from falling in in the first place. You do that by rapid rehousing. You do that by opening up more housing opportunities. And yes, all of those things are critically important. And in theory, that model is correct. It turns out, though, in the real world, and I've come to this since then, it's not a super accurate model, because you have way less control over the tap and over the drain than you think you do. That model works if you believe that public policy alone can pull those levers and turn those knobs. But it works in a vacuum, but it doesn't work when you hit a housing crisis and you know suddenly interest rates go through the roof Is the Fed's raising interest rates and development stops. Or it doesn't work when you have a fentanyl crisis that's pouring people onto the streets because addiction is rampant, right? It doesn't work when you have Other economic factors that mean that the cost of housing is so unaffordable, you're getting people in that pool faster than you can deal with it. And so all these other external exogenous factors really overwhelm public policy's ability to just focus on that. So not to say that you can't focus on that, you have to, but you also have to do short-run things as well, even if they're not the optimal long-term solution.
0: Okay, so... I've got two probably big questions about this. And then we have to talk about bottles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so first question is, and you're a Democrat, does the government have the capacity to solve the scale of the problems that you're discussing as currently constituted? Like, do you believe that that like part of what I want? I mean, Ted Wheeler famously ran on like ending homelessness I don't think that the government can actually deliver that, at least not in short period. Like it takes a lot more than just the government to solve that problem. And I wonder if that's part of, you know, who did we talk to? We had one episode where someone said one of the, I think it was actually John Tapania who was talking about the study that they did in LA. And it was like, part of the job of leaders is to like level set expectations about yeah. what's actually possible. I'm curious how you think about that, like being both aspirational and realistic.
1: Well, when you say the government, I guess, as you know, and you know this as well as I do, it depends what level of government you're talking about, right? Can the city solve this on its own? No, it can't. There are fundamental issues that need to be addressed, you know, in the addiction realm and the mental health realm and, you know, investments in housing. But I also think when you look at the data, Portland's not doing great compared to other places around the country. And so I don't think it's fair to kind of throw up your hands and say, too hard to deal with, we can't deal with it, right? Because other places are doing it, right? But they're also making hard choices that it's been hard for us to make, right? So to be honest, and I can say this now because I'm not in public office and I don't need anybody to vote for me. (laughs) We have a really hard time as a community talking about livability because it gets into all these code words for nimbyism and various Uh things. We can have a really strong land use planning system and really strong planning. I believe in that. I think it's a great thing, but you can't have that and have a NIMBY attitude about development within Portland, right? Like you got to choose there because otherwise if you have lots of planning and you're not willing to do infill and development, then you don't have any housing, right? right. And that's where we've been stuck. So we can have a great system that protects farm and forest land, but guess what the trade-off is, right? You're going to have larger buildings and denser neighborhoods and all of those things. And Portland thinks it's dense, but it is not very dense. And that's just one of those trade-offs that I think politicians have to level set. Government has to level set with the public and say, it's not just so much of setting the appropriate expectations for whether or not we're going to solve the problem. It's also the like, given the choices that you, you, the public, are willing to make as a political body, here's the outcomes we can expect. And if you want to make different choices, we might get different outcomes.
0: Yeah, Reagan cited this, and we just talked to a counselor, Gonzalez from Metro, and I think there's an. The, the data was basically like, "Would you support additional development in your community?" And most people were like, "No, we don't. We don't." No, want that. they don't. They don't want it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So my second question, and I don't know if you're prepared to answer this question. You don't have to. I don't know how much you've thought about Portland's new form of government. But one critique that I've heard, and I don't know that, I I don't think I subscribe to this. I don't, I haven't, I don't know. I haven't spent enough time thinking about it is like this new form of government is going to make it actually harder to make the types of shifts and changes that you're talking about. It's going to be make it, make it harder to hold elected officials accountable for making progress and for the decisions that they make. And that actually like this new form of government is like going to be net negative for Portland. What did, you, what did you think? You obviously had to vote on that. You're a Portland voter. Like, What do you think about this new form of government and what it will mean for solving these kinds of problems?
1: I worry that that's a correct perception. I don't have a crystal ball. To the extent that I do, it's cracked. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. I voted against it, but now we got to make do with what we have. And I voted against it for a couple of reasons. One, I voted against it because I do worry that having a system where there's this sort of there's this belief that somehow an unelected city manager is sort of like this you know platonic ideal of a philosopher king that is somehow going to like step in and and mediate disputes with an even hand like no guess what it's still a political job it's just not one that you vote for directly and you know the first first rule of government the first rule of government at any level period is count your votes that's mm-hmm. it like that's you right. can't do anything until you count your votes And what is the city manager going to be doing? Counting their votes amongst the city council, managing the people that can fire them, and they will move at the speed of the slowest actor. And so to the extent that you think you could call up the city manager and say, oh, let's get some action going on this or that, that person is by definition going to be more conservative and slow and less responsive. And maybe that's a good thing in that it's an even-handed way. But I don't think it necessarily means there's going to be suddenly an epiphany of innovative ideas that are going to be implemented quickly to solve the problems that we have. And I think it's less power in the mayor. And I think it's harder for average people to understand where to bring their grievance, how to approach and access their democracy, because it feels impenetrable. And, you know, whether you like it or not, having a mayor that is a strong mayor is a very understandable thing for people. And someone who has that executive power can be held accountable for that executive power is kind of the way that, you know, successful cities are wired. But we have what we have now and we'll see where it goes. And so what that means is there's going to be an extra emphasis on the importance for Portlanders to become civically engaged in their government, because now they have a myriad of different candidates that they're going to have to track and vote for and understand and hold accountable. And the ability to hold them accountable has become much harder because in order to unelect a city councilor, they're gonna to have to come in fourth. It was hard enough to unelect them when they only had to come in second, but now they're gonna to have to come in fourth to be held accountable. And so Portlanders are gonna to have to be really on their game and that's gonna mean the need for a really strong local press. It's going to mean that we're gonna to have to protect investigative journalism, right? And and people are gonna to have to subscribe to their local papers or, you know, or whatever it is. And we're gonna to have to make sure that people who are civically interested are recruiting and advancing candidates in this process who are of similar mind, because the worst thing would be if the third place candidate can get elected, then you have people who are running for the wrong reasons who are getting elected because they appeal to a very narrow slice of the electorate. And I think that's the danger that's out
0: there. Well, that's going to be so interesting to watch. I mean, to your point, it does seem to me that the one outcome of this new form of government is that like, it's already really hard for incumbents to lose election it seems like nearly impossible for an incumbent to be removed from office but i could be wrong about that i don't know i'm not a
1: election scientist yeah it's my sense let's talk some bottles and cans
0: let's (laughs) talk about bottles and cans so you run for mayor you don't win i think you had to leave the county commission by running for mayor so your next move was the beverage recycling cooperative
1: yeah you know it's it's uh it's funny when my son was about i don't know Three, he was kind of learning what different jobs are. My wife's a, a physician, and he says, his Mama, you're a, you're a doctor, right?" She says, "Yeah." He says, hey, you, "You help help sick people." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she looks at me. He looks at me, and he says, "And Daddy, you're a, you're a garbage man." I said, yeah, yeah. Basically, that's that's right. That's kind of right. And he said, "Can I ride on the truck someday?" I was like, "Well, I'm not that kind of garbage man, but sure, I can find it. I can find a truck for you to run on." Yeah. No, it's a I, I frankly. I love, love, love my job. There is nowhere else I would rather be. And, you know, I'm going to be a lifer here if they let me. I get to wake up every single day and engage on one of the most iconic legacies in Oregon and the state's bottle bill and do good environmental work, help reduce carbon emissions, get material back into circularity and do that all in a privately run private sector context that's run by the beverage industry and gets the best outcomes in the nation. And in doing so, you know, we get to do a lot with that. We get to do things like the refillable bottle program and create that and we get to you know, do people can link their green bag accounts to their 529 college savings plan. We just passed a million dollars saved uh, for college through that program. And you know, with nonprofits, I get to give out through OBRC, we give out close to $6 million a year through our customers uh-huh. to nonprofits. If we were a foundation in the state of Oregon pumping $6 million a year into nonprofits in Oregon, we'd actually rank among the larger foundations in Oregon. It's super fun work to get to do.
0: So before we get into a little bit more about OBRC, can you like take us back to the Tom McCall era of like... How did I think we were the first in the country to do a bottle deposit? Is that right? right. How did that How did that happen?
1: Well, so in 1971, we passed the bottle bill. It was really there was a guy by the name of Richard Chambers who was an activist, and he uh, was really concerned about all the litter that was starting to pile up. And uh, fun fact: Richard Chambers' daughter is former state representative Vicky Berger.
0: Uh, who
1: is an incredible human being, one of my favorite people on the planet. And I got to serve with her. And she really shepherded, along with Ben Cannon, a lot of the changes to Oregon's Bottle Bill that modernized it today, uh, sort of in her father's legacy. She was sort of one of my mentors in the legislature. And so Richard Chambers worked with Paul Hanneman, who was a state rep at the time, to introduce this legislation. And then Tom McCall got on board and decided to champion the cause and declare that we would put a bounty on the head of every pop can and bottle in the state and bring it back. And, and the cool thing about it, right, was that because we were the first program in the nation, we had no idea what we were doing. And so what we did was we essentially said there will be a five cent refund. Few people know this. There's actually not a deposit in state law. There's only a refund value. The deposit is sort of Privately organized to pay oh, for the right. refund value. Okay. But there will be a five cent refund value when you bring your containers back. Distributors, you are responsible for picking up all the containers and dealing with it all. Grocers, you're responsible for taking them back. Go forward and figure out how to make that happen. And that was really sort of as much as was in state law. And so we call the bottle bill aspirational and not prescriptive. Hmm. And it did what I think good government is supposed to do, which was. It set the goalposts and outlined the parameters of responsibility, but then left it to the private sector to go figure out within those constraints how to go make it happen, right? And that was really successful. So did OBRC exist since the founding? (laughs) So I sort of, you know, described it as like the Big Bang, right? So 1971 (laughs) was the Big Bang, and there was a big hot soup and lots of things and little entities, and it was only later that galaxies started to sort of clump together and form. And so, you know, initially you had this program where, because it only applied to soda and beer when it originally started. No one had heard of kombucha in 1971, (laughs) and if they did, they would have thought it was gross. It's (laughs) I like kombucha. They were wrong. It's delicious. (laughs) fantastic. Yeah, but they admittedly would have thought it was gross. And there wasn't hard seltzer and there wasn't, you know, all that stuff. So it's beer and pop. And those were distributed on very regularized channels, right? There wasn't 40 different types of craft beer in the grocery store and a million different kinds of soda. You could choose between like Coke, Pepsi, RC, and you could choose between like Henry Weinhardt's Bud Light, you know Miller, whatever. And so you had a limited number of distributors. They would drop off product at the grocery store, you'd return it to the grocery store, and then they would pick up their own bottles and cans in their trucks when they left the grocery store and take them back. But it meant that you could only return brands back to stores that sold those brands Um, because the distributor had to be able to pick it up on the backhaul, right? And then over time, it sort of existed that way until the 80s. And then in the 80s, you started to get this clumping together of different distributors forming regional groups that would process the material that they were bringing back together. But then everything really changed when the legislature in 2007 brought bottled water into the equation. And bottled water is distributed completely differently from other beverage types. There's drop shipping. There's all sorts of different stuff. And so suddenly it didn't make any sense to be able to do it in the way that you had done it before. And you had to be able to return any container to any store where you'd bought it. And so the beverage industry got together and said, why don't we form a statewide cooperative to handle all of the logistics and processing and all of this on our behalf? So we get the economies of scale. We're not all individually running trucks. We don't have all these different processing plants. And several of them merged together to form OBRC in 2008 and then be able to handle all of that. So since 2008, you're now able to return any container anywhere. And what that meant was, was now it was possible to do things like the green bag program because you had a single entity that was doing all of the trucking, all of the processing. You didn't have individual distributors involved and you could mix all your containers into one bag, drop it off and have them all processed together. And that wasn't possible before then.
0: I remember when I was a kid going with my, we would return our, we'd go back to Fred Myers and we would put the, you'd do the one by ones on the bottles and you'd have the bulk cans that you could put in. And now it's bottle drop. What was there legislative action that prompted that change? Or was that just you all
1: kind of trying to innovate and make it easier? The legislature allowed for it, but we did it right. So the legislature said distributors, you may form a co-op and You don't have to, but you may form a co-op to handle all the responsibility. And it said it created the idea of a redemption center. So if a redemption center went in a specific place, there was a zone around it. There is a zone around it where the stores are relieved of taking back their containers, but it gets centralized at at the redemption center. But there was no green bag program in state law or anything like that. The concept was originally just having those same machines that you described, but in sort of centers and depots. But then the industry, OBRC, created this green bag program. And you know when I started at OBRC almost seven years ago now, there were like 50,000 account holders and you had to sign up on paper and you had to do it at your redemption center because you had to drop off your bag at the store. There was no app. If you had a problem with your bag, you had to literally like go inside and talk to somebody at the counter to get, get a problem resolved. Now, flash forward, we have nearly a million account holders. There's only 1.4 million households in the state of Oregon, a million account holders. Wow. We have an app coming soon to be able to use Venmo, PayPal, bank-to-bank transfer to manage your money, link it to your kid's 529 college savings plan. You can give it to over 5,000 nonprofits in the state of Oregon. And we're processing during the summer months, we'll peak around 50,000 green bags processed a day, every single wow. day, right? I mean, that's massive. And so 10 12 years ago, you had 100% of returns going back to retail. You had 90% going back to large format grocery stores, 10% going to convenience stores. Now, flash forward to today, about 78, almost 80% of returns go directly back through the bottle drop network, either through green bag drops at grocery stores or through the redemption centers. And a little over 10% is going back through large format retail stores and about 10% through convenience stores. So it's completely shifted from the way that you remember when you were a kid. And a lot of those changes have happened just in the last few years, especially with the change from five to 10 cents, the expansion of containers, and then the availability of the green bag program. So are you still on the board of OLCV? I am. I chair the board. Yeah.
0: So so one of the critiques, uh, like broad critiques of recycling, the idea of recycling is that like it was the wrong thesis, the idea that we could... Reuse, I'm not, I don't know the technical vocabulary, but you you get what I'm like the what we really should have done is created like permanent things that could be reused multiple times rather than things that had to be processed and but a, I'm curious like how you think about that question of like the merits of recycling in the broader sort of like environmental movement. And then B, I think that's like also a, a good segue into the refillable program, which is like kind of addressing that critique in some ways. So I'm kind of curious how you think about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a hierarchy, right? Between recycling and reuse, but it gets complicated really quickly. So recycling, I think garnered a little bit of that reputation because frankly, we sucked at recycling back in the day. I mean, we sort of as a society, right? And there was this idea that you could just mix everything together, throw it in the curbside bin and everything would turn out okay. And it turned out that you were downcycling stuff and shipping it overseas and turning, but in the bottle bill. 100% A hundred percent of all of that material is recycled domestically. All the glass, all the plastic is recycled in Oregon. All the aluminum is done domestically and it all gets turned back into circular ready uses, right? So the aluminum all becomes new aluminum cans. The glass all becomes new bottles in Portland at the OI facility near the at the airport. The plastic doesn't all go back into new plastic bottles, but it could, right? there's some there's issues with demand in, in the marketplace. And so that kind of recycling is incredibly Mm -hmm. powerful because the reality is these containers are a resource. They are a resource that should not be wasted. And so our vision is a world that none of these resources go to waste. And that we're actually maximizing those resources, which is very different from some of, I think, the recycling in the past. But reuse is also incredibly powerful. And so we started the state's first, actually, excuse me, the nation's first statewide refillable program. So we actually make refillable bottles with Owens, Illinois out of our recycled glass right here in Portland Mm -hmm. and near the Portland airport. And then those go into the marketplace. A lot of great brands use them. So if you've picked up a gigantic beer, double mountain, or you've gotten a ancestry beer, or, you know, you had a Cooper's hall wine bottle, those are all refillable bottles. If you look closely at them, you'll be able to see that. And when you return them, you return them the exact same way you return all the rest of your bottles. We pull them out of the stream, we wash them, we sanitize them, and we get them back to the to to the brewery. And that is a ninety five percent carbon savings over one way wow. glass. And it's fantastic. It's been really successful. But you could also imagine a situation where reuse could be challenging from an environmental perspective. So imagine if we had to collect back one of those stubby little Bundaberg root beer bottles or something. And we had to ship that back to Australia to go get refilled before it came back. Mm, probably yeah. better to just grind that down and recycle it, right? So you're always having to kind of look at those puts and takes. So
0: is the goal to, like, why wouldn't every Oregon winery and Oregon beer company participate in the refillable program? like that? If that happened, that would have a
1: massive carbon impact, I'm guessing. It would. And, and we've had tons of interest. One of the major reasons is actually a logistical reason, which is that any bottle that leaves the state is a oh, bottle we can't recover. And that's a lost investment, right? And so we're right now limited to, to brands that have no more than 25% out of state distribution, which limits it to local breweries and not some of the big the big dogs. But imagine if Washington Hard to believe, but Washington does not have a deposit return program. Has oh no gosh. bottle. Bill. Yeah, no. That's but embarrassing they're the only them. place on the West Coast that doesn't. But if they were to implement one, imagine if we could trade bottles back and forth across the border, as you might imagine, like 80% of Oregon beverage exports go to Washington and vice oh, versa. Wow. And we could just trade those bottles back and forth and then we could get into some of the big brands and other things and the opportunities for you, reuse would be amazing. That's super interesting.
0: Well, Jules, I'm ar- I've am i already taken us five minutes over, but I've really enjoyed the conversation. I guess my closing question to you would be, if folks are interested in learning more about OBRC or maybe want to chat with you about 2000s era politics in Oregon, <laughs> uh, what's the best way for them to learn more or get in touch?
1: Oh, man. Well, they wanted to talk about OBRC. We just relaunched our OBRC.com website. It has a ton of the history of the bottle bill and how it works and descriptions of what the heck extended producer responsibility is. Fun fact, we are the oldest extended producer responsibility program in the nation. We just had no idea to call it that back in the time. That's a new thing. If people want to kibitz with me about 2000s era uh, <laughs> Oregon <laughs> politics, that's best done over a beer and they can re- reach out to me directly. So
0: <laughs> Hopefully a uh, refillable beer. Uh, Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Jules, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hey, Ben, real pleasure. Thanks so much for your time.